coming up on the Switch Lake City podcast, we're going to be talking about Omer Yurtsevin, um, out of Turkey, out of Miami, who recently signed with the Utah Jazz. Kind of excited about the signing. I'm going to talk about why. Also going to talk about Utah's young players and where I would rank them based on their value and how I personally value them going forward. And one reason I think the Utah Jazz could be a playoff team next year. Um, one reason that I don't think is talked about enough. As always, this episode of the Swish Lake City podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Check the show notes for details. This episode of the Swish Lake City podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. I want to tell you about the easiest way to get in on some action on the NBA. It's Underdog Fantasy and their pick'em game. Just pick higher or lower on your favorite or least favorite player stats and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile apps. Pick between two and five players to fill out your pick entry, get every pick right, and take home some solid hard cash. Use the code SWISH, S-W-I-S-H, and get your first deposit doubled up to $100 by Underdog. That means if you pay $100, then they will match that $100 deposit, and you'll have $200 to put on fantasy games. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with my promo code SWISH to get your fantasy, to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Sign up today with promo code SWISH and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. You must be 18 plus and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. In terms of why, concerned with your play, call 1-800-522-4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org. The Utah Jazz recently acquired Omer Yurtsevin out of Turkey. He is 25 years old. I believe he just had his birthday. Uh, there's a lot to like about him. Um, I mean, let, let's be real. Like, it's not like we're signing an incredible center. Um, but I do think as your third string center, he's a really good option. I'm excited to talk about him. Um, there's a lot to like about him. So, I've, I've, I've watched the tape. I've tried to do my homework. I've di- divin, dived dived into the stats, um, tried to get a really good feel about him because, frankly, I wasn't too familiar with him. I did know he was a player. I knew he existed. I knew his name. But outside of that, I wasn't too familiar with his game. I kind of – I had some conceptions about him that digging into the stats, watching the film, I wasn't right about. So I'm glad that I was able to do, do some homework. Um. So he's played two seasons in Miami. I think that, that's where you got to start. He's played two seasons in Miami. His rookie season, he played. He was 23 years old. He played in 56 games, including starting in 12 games. And I think a lot of people were like, felt that he could be a, a pretty good player. Um, coming in as a rookie to be productive the way he was, was very promising. Really good start to his career. In those 36, 56 games, he only played 12.6 minutes per game. Um, he averaged 5.3 points per game, 5.3 rebounds per game. So it's kind of hard to get a feel just because he didn't play a ton, even in the games that he did play. And for those 12 games he started, he started because Bam Adebayo was out and with either an injury or health and safety protocols. Um, kind of that weird year, his rookie season was that weird year where you're going through health and safety protocols all the time. So it was kind of hard to get a feel for Omer and how good of a player he was just by looking at the stats. I do think there is something to be said about the per 36 minute stats. Um, 
because, I mean, look, the guy, he's not going to play 36 minutes in a game, and it's hard to judge somebody's stats based on 12 minutes a game, but where I think the per 36 minutes stats really helps and makes it easier to understand what a player is like and and what kind of a player you're getting and how productive a player is. Um, yeah, like like I said, I think it's the production. You're able to kind of see how productive they are on a minute-to-minute basis. And so that's why I was intrigued with his per 36-minute stats. In his rookie season, his per 36-minute stats, he averaged 15.2 points per game, 15 rebounds per game, 4.3 offensive rebounds. The offensive rebounding is something to really like like i watched i watched the film i've tried to get a good idea of who he is on the court not just the stats and he's he's kind of a dominant offensive rebounder in the same way walker kessler is a really good offensive rebounder walker kessler was one of the best offensive rebounders this last season uh i don't know if people quite remember that but he was honestly a top five offensive rebounder omer yurtsevin like Per 36 minutes, he's a really good offensive rebounder, and it shows when he plays. I think that's how he's able to create a lot of his ba- a lot of his buckets. Um, he just has a really good feel of where to be on the floor, which I think is super intriguing. He also he, he makes the hustle plays. I think a lot of offensive rebounding is being able to first be smart. Um, you have to kind of watch the ball. Where's the ball going to go? Understand the rotations of the ball, like Dennis Rodman explains this in the last dance documentary, how he just had such a good understanding of how to rebound. He would just, he would have his trainer just shoot shots and he would just stand under the basket, watch the rotation of the ball, watch how it hits the rim. And then he would be able to, with time would be able to understand where the ball was going. I'm not saying Omer is anywhere clear, close to the rebounder that Dennis Rodman is, but I do think he has that same kind of feel where he's able to read where rebounds go. Like there's a couple that I've I've watched where he goes for a rebound. Um he's kind of in the key and a ball might hit the rim weird and then just kind of drop and go to like a dead spot where there's nobody on the court. And he's able to get to those spots and he's able to read the ball and be the first person to the ball. So I think there's a lot to be intrigued with as far as the rebounding goes. Um that's the first thing that really jumps out. He's not an incredible passer. And maybe that that was one of my questions. Like, why wasn't he playing more in Miami? I mean, they were playing Cody Zeller in the playoffs. Surely, when you look at his per 36-minute stats, his stats on a minute-to-minute basis are better than Cody Zeller's. So I was curious as to why he wasn't able to play over Cody Zeller. Diving into the stats a little bit um, and watching some of the film, I think one of the big things is he isn't a great passer. And when you think about Miami and their team and the way they play, they play as a team. You don't think of a lot of hero ball. Although Jimmy Butler has been a hero, a lot of what they do as a team is move the ball and they play in a really good system, a system that is comprised of ball movement and finding the open man and finding the best shot you possibly can. I don't know if he's necessarily a guy that fit into that system. And so that's why I don't think he was playing a lot. That's, that's a question mark I have about him um, because I don't know if Utah is necessarily a better system for him. As far as that goes. Um, Like when I watch Utah, I don't think they're nearly as unselfish as the Miami Heat are. Um, I think they do some of those things though. And they emphasize ball movement. They emphasize getting the open look. 
not quite to the same degree that the 2021 Utah Jazz did, but to a degree. And I don't know if he necessarily fits that. I don't know if he is like a great passer. That's something I want to see more out of him and how he's going to be able to pass on the Utah Jazz in a system where he is going to need to pass and they're going to ask for some sort of creation out of him. Um, That's one question mark I have. So some of the percentages, I think the percentages are interesting. Um, And a lot of people have labeled him as a stretch big, a three-point shooter. I'm hesitant to go there. In his first season, he shot 11 threes, made one. So that's good for about 9%. In his second season, he shot seven threes and made three. That's good for 42.9%. Great. That's fantastic. Is that sample size enough? Are we able to make an informed judgment based on that sample size? I don't think so. Um, I really want to see more. As far as like the form and actually watching it, it looks good. The shot looks good. And I think he is really good at positioning himself. Um, a lot of these three-point attempts come out of the pick and roll and kind of a pick and pop. And he's good at positioning himself. He shoots from above the break. He's not just a corner three-point shooter. I think that's interesting too. Um, so there are signs that he could be a good shooter. I also think one of the other signs you have to look at is the jump in his free throw percentage from year one to year two. And granted, his first season, he shot 61 free throws, made 38. So that was good for about 62.3% from the from the free throw line. His second season, he only shot six free throws, but he made five of them. So it's hard to make like a statement like, oh, he definitely improved as, as a shooter when the sample size is so small, but there is a lot to like. Um, I'm sure if I dived into the G League stats a little bit more, then we would be able to get a good read on how the shooting has jumped. But just to be transparent, that's not something I've done yet. So that's a vertical um, that I'm excited to explore, see if the shooting was real, if there was really a jump while he was in the G League, while he was getting minutes there. A couple other things just that I've noticed while watching tape. He's got great touch. He has really, really good touch. And that's another thing where you kind of buy into the shooting because he has really good touch. Um, A lot of times you'll get bigs like him, especially foreign bigs that just don't have good touch. I mean, it's hard for any bigs to have good touch in this day day and age. Like that's not necessarily what they're required to do or asked to do. They're not required or asked to create out of the post, create for themselves. Um, A lot of them don't have that in their game, but he does. And he's he's pretty good in the post up. Like I wouldn't say he's incredible, not to the same degree. Here I'll I'll throw a Turkish center out there, not to the same degree as Anis Cantor was really good in the post. Um, look, I know I know we have as Jazz fans a tendency to bash on Anis Cantor and his freedom. Fair, the Jazz tenure wasn't great in OKC. Look, I, I've been watching. Um, some of the Warriors versus OKC in 2016 lately. He was pretty good in the post, and he showed that a lot more when he went to Portland, when he went to Boston. Like, the knock on Ennis Cantor has never been that he wasn't able to create for himself or that he wasn't a productive offensive player because he was a productive offensive player. It was completely the knock, a knock on what he was able to do on the other side of the court as well as his kind of lack of spacing. All that to say... Omer Yurtsevin is kind of the same, um, not from the defensive perspective, but offensively, he's he has really good touch, like Ennis Cantor did. 
he is able to create for himself a little bit in the post. Um, I think the offensive rebounds are a big part of that. He'll get an offensive rebound and then just be able to maybe take a couple dribbles or not. He doesn't always take a couple dribbles, but if the offensive rebound goes out a little bit further, he can kind of start to back down a guy. He can punish mis- mismatches um, and get an easy bucket. So there, I think there's a lot to like about what he does as on offense. My other big question is, how good of a defender is he? Um, and was that one of the reasons he wasn't able to stay on the court for Miami or be on the court at all? Per 36 minutes in his second season, he averaged 6.9 fouls. So he's fouling out every game if he's playing 36 minutes. Not great. Um, 0.9 steals, 0.9 blocks. I mean, like I said, the sample size is so small that it's difficult to make any real conclusions about it. I will say there are a couple things that I liked while watching the tape. He moves his feet pretty well, and I think he has a general understanding of defense and defensive schemes. He knows how to play drop. He knows how to switch a little bit. Um, Like, I don't think he's an all-world defender. I do think he's an okay defender, though, and he's somebody that you probably feel confident about playing in the second string or third unit, second or third unit. We'll see where he ends up. Which brings me to my next question. What's his, what's his role with the jazz? Um, I've talked a little bit about how I think the front court rotation is going to play out. I'll kind of give my final thoughts as of right now, because I don't think there will be any more front court additions. Walker Kessler is the starting center. I think John Collins is going to be your starting four and Laurie Markin is your starting three. All right, I think I think that's pretty set in stone. We have we've got a really good idea of what that's going to look like. Then when you start to get down, is Taylor Hendricks going to play? I would imagine Taylor Hendricks plays a bit. There's going to be minutes for him at the four, at the five, maybe even at the three. Does Kelly Olynyk play? I think Kelly Olynyk obviously he's playing. He's going to play a lot. He does so much on offense. He does so much from a creation standpoint that Utah desperately needs. I think you almost out of necessity have to play Kelly Olenek and that's fine. He was a productive player last year. I think that's totally okay. So where does Omer Yurtsevin fit in to that group? Um, he, cause I imagine playing Olenek, Hendricks, and maybe even John Collins at the five. While it might not be John Collins best position. I think he could play a little bit there. If the jazz are wanting to go small and stretch the floor. So, I'm not expecting Omer Yurtsevin to get 20 minutes a game. Frankly, I'd be surprised if he's playing more than he was in his first season where he was playing 12 minutes per game. However, and I'm going to get to this later in the episode, this is one reason that I really like the Jazz and their playoff chances next year. There is going to be a time when one of your front court members goes down. Laurie Markkinen has had injuries in the past. John Collins has had injuries in the past. A Walker Kessler, I don't know. He's a big man. It big things happen with big men. Kelly Olynyk might get injured. Taylor Hendricks. Heck, we didn't even see Taylor Hendricks in summer league. So there's an argument that he's going to be able to get minutes during the season, and I think he's going to be pretty productive. Whether he's in the starting backup center role, pointing back to his per 36 minute stats, every time he plays, every time he's on the floor, he's able to produce. He's able to rebound. He's able to score. can shoot a little bit. There's a lot to like when that's your 
third string center. So welcome to the Jazz from where you have been. All right, coming up on this next segment, I'm going to be talking about Utah's young players and how I would rank them. Um, the players, we'll start with the players. Larry Markinen, Walker Kessler, Keontae George, Ochag Baji, Taylor Hendricks, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Horton Tucker, and Colin Sexton. Those are the players. It's a pretty simple list. I believe all of them are about 26 and under. Um, so I'm going to be, there's a couple criterias that I want to go into here. Um, a couple of ways that I want to evaluate them. First, I'm going to be looking kind of at their trade value. Um, what they mean to the franchise, how the fans value them. And over just overall, their, their overall value and production as a player and who I believe in the most. Um, that's kind of going to be the criteria. We'll start with the last, the last out of these. Um, just just to refresh, the list is Laurie Markkinen, Walker Kessler, Keontae George, Otag Baji, Taylor Hendricks, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Horton Tucker, and Colin Sexton. So last on this list, I have Taylor Horton Tucker. That shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Um, I've openly been a little bit of a critic of Taylor Horton Tucker. I feel like I've also been pretty fair in the way that I've analyzed him i think he's had a lot of good moments for the jazz but he's also had some not so great moments for the jazz so it's it's interesting to dive into taylor horn tucker and end of the day he's he's still 22 like he will be 22 on opening night next year that's a that's big the guy he's played in four seasons played a total of 196 games he has that under his belt and you hope that, as part of that, he's been able to learn a lot. Here's the thing, though. We've we've watched we watched one season of Taylor Horton Tucker with the Jazz, a couple seasons with the Lakers. His first season, he played in seven games or six games. People were excited about him. They thought he was going to be like the next big thing for the Lakers. His second season, he played honestly played pretty good for them. Uh, played in sixty five games, started in four. Average nine points was just had a lot of flashes. And here's here's the big thing with Taylor Horton Tucker. If you watch a highlight reel of him, you're gonna think he's a really good player because he takes and makes difficult shots. He does all the dunking. He is so flashy and so good in transition. Like that's one thing I really do appreciate about Taylor Horton Tucker, and that's one reason I do think he has value is because of what, of he, what he's able to add in transition as far as being a capable transition threat, a lob thrower. Like, he makes his best passes, best reads, best decisions when he's in transition. Granted, that's not very hard. Most people do. His third season is where things kind of started to turn down. And so, like, between, I think, his second and third season, there were talks of trading him for, like, Fred Van Vliet, that the Lakers would be able to get Fred Van Vliet for Taylor Horton Tucker, and that the Lakers turned that down. I don't know the validity the validity of those talks or how far they actually got. I'd be pretty surprised um, if they got that far because, I mean, he hadn't really shown enough to, like, believe in him as a, a franchise cornerstone, in my opinion. This last season with the Utah Jazz, he played in 65 games, started in 20 of them, played about 20 minutes per game. He averaged 10.7 minutes per game, um, 3.8 assists per game, Shot 41% from the field, 29% from three. He also averaged two turnovers per game. So almost four assists to two turnovers per game. 
there's things to like and there's things to not like. Um, as far as productivity, it was his most productive season. He was given the third most min- the second most minutes of his career. He played 1,313 minutes this last season. Um, the year before for the Lakers, he played 1,511 minutes. On a per 36-minute basis, he was the most productive he had been um, during his entire career. And we saw it. We, Jazz fans, we saw it. He would come in, come in off the bench. Um, he wouldn't come in every game. You kind of, at the beginning of the season, you had Mike Conley as your starting point guard, and then Colin Sexton would come in off the bench. And then you'd kind of had Nikhil Alexander-Walker playing ahead of Taylor Horton-Tucker at times, and you'd have Taylor Horton-Tucker playing at the two or at the three. Didn't have the ball in his hands a ton. However, as the season went on, as the Jazz traded Mike Conley, he got a lot more opportunities, especially when Colin Sexton got injured. And Taylor Horton-Tucker essentially inserted himself into the starting lineup as a starting point guard. And as a starter, he was, he was okay. I mean, like, the Jazz weren't doing great, and he didn't he wasn't doing great, but he was producing. I think that was one consistent thing about Taylor Horton-Tucker is he was producing whenever he was playing. However, the production was never efficient, and he was always making turnovers, making poor decisions. And that's where I'm really scared about Taylor Horton-Tucker in his future. I understand that he's 22, but at the same time, he's been in the league for 44 years. He's played in 196 games. There's some things that you expect somebody in their fourth year to be able to do, reads that they should be able to make, um, and just have a general sense of what their role is. I talked about this a little bit because we don't know. And maybe Taylor Horton Tucker doesn't even know what his role is. I think it's hard to value him. So for that reason, I have him last on this list. In second to last, I have Bryce Sensabaugh. I'm not going to dive too much into Bryce Sensabaugh. I'll just say this. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give him a fair chance because he deserves it. He was one of the best shooters in college basketball last year, if not the best. I mean, Go look at his shot chart. It's just insane. He was incredibly efficient, taking really hard shots, was really good last year. My big thing with him is I just, I don't know about how durable he's going to be. It made me nervous that he didn't play in any of summer league. Granted, Taylor Hendricks didn't either, and I do have Taylor Hendricks a little bit higher on this list. Um, I'm also worried about his defense. I think defense is going to be crucial for him to be able to earn minutes and lastly i just i'm i don't know about how much opportunity he's going to get on the jazz um i would expect he starts the season in the summer league plays a lot of summer league minutes hopefully he's able to ball out i think there are certain things you can ask him to do you can ask him to really work on the defense and hey to his credit he has said that he feels like he's improved on defense since the season began so I'm I'm putting a little bit of stock into that. I want to see what he can do. I want to see how he how good of a defender he can be. Because if he turns into even like a C minus defender, which isn't great, but good enough to be able to play and justify his offensive production, then I'm all in. I want I want to see him play. I want to see what he can do. But if he's not at that level, then I think it's hard to justify him getting real NBA minutes. So I have him second to last. More than anything, it's just I have question marks, and I'm sure being able to watch him play and see what he could do could answer a lot of those question marks. Next on the list, 
This might surprise some people. Um, and look, I'll just I'll preface this by saying the Jazz has a pretty nice young core. There's a lot to be excited about. But I don't, I don't want to make anybody mad. I just I want to I want to get into Ochai He I have him third to last on this list. Um, I think we know what Ochai is. I think he's going to be a really good, probably not great, role player. And I think he's going to fit his role. I think he knows what his role is. I love I love that about him. He projects to be a 3 and D player from pretty much this point on, on out. Somebody that can also... He's not just taking threes. He is a good cutter. He's pretty good off the ball. I think he can do a little bit of driving. So that's where I'm kind of like, okay, I like that. But as far as like expanding his game outside of that, I don't I don't know how much we're gonna see. I talked about this last week, so I won't hammer this too hard. I just wish we would have seen more from a playmaking creation standpoint out of summer league. Um, it's raised some question marks for me. I don't know how. Like I said, I I want my two guard, which I think is gonna be his best position. I want my two guard to be able to create. And I don't know at this point if he's going to be somebody that is able to create. And maybe that's fine. Maybe the Jazz are able to luck into somebody that can handle 35 minutes on the ball. But end of the day, I just I would have liked to see more from him. Um, I think there's there were some real growing pains last season. There's a reason that it took a minute and some trades for him to get a real spot in the rotation. But this next year, I think he will have a real spot in the rotation. And I think we'll be able to get a much better idea of the type of player that he is. The three-point shooting was fantastic in Summer League. I, I thought it was great. He looks like a really good, confident three-point shooter. That's something that he showed a little bit of in college. But when I watched him, I thought he was, he was for the most part, a kind of mid-range shooter, attacking the basket kind of guy. Seeing him as a good three-point shooter is really intriguing to me. And I think that's going to be something that keeps him in the league for a long time. That, along with his defense, I'm curious to see how he develops as a defender. But right now, he's looking like he is on the fast track to become a defender. So, I have him third to last on the list. Next, Colin Sexton. I, I, I'm I high on Colin Sexton. I, I've kind of talked myself into it. Maybe, maybe I'm being unrealistic. Maybe... I have some bias, but I, I, I'm just a believer. You just, you look back two seasons. 2020, 2020 to 21. He played 60 games, was a starter for 60 games. I mean, he's been a starter for most of his career. This for this last season was the first season that he came off the bench for the majority of the games. He's been a starter for most of his career. And I really do think that the role change probably was difficult for him. The reason I'm putting stock into him and into the player that he can be, there's a couple reasons. First off, I think last year was really crucial for his development. I think it was crucial for him to learn some winning habits as far as being a playmaker, his decision-making, which overall he kind of improved. There's a lot to like there. I also think he kind of understands the player that he needs to be from a shooting perspective. 
we didn't see him taking crazy shots. I thought for the most part, his game was pretty in control, especially from the shooting and shot creation perspective. Um, it was more of the playmaking as well as some of the attacking the basket stuff that was more questionable. But I do think he has to leverage his ability to attack the basket, and that's something that he has to use on a game-to-game basis. So I'm totally fine with it. Overall, like I'm I'm high on Colin Sexton. I I think he has a chance at being a good player. He's gonna be put into the starting lineup. That would be my assumption on night one. He will have opportunities to be the lead playmaker, to run the offense, to facilitate, and that's where he's gonna be able to prove himself. I believe in his ability to prove himself because in the few minutes the few games we saw him as a starter last season. He was able to do that. He was able to facilitate. Granted, the roster was broken, um, and it wasn't looking very good, and they were losing games. Those few games, that I think from Colin Sexton's perspective, there was a lot to like. So my question now is, okay, how is he going to look playing with Jordan Clarkson and Laurie Markkinen and Walker Kessler and John Collins? And then bring in Kelly Olenek. You're, you're going to have guys with talent around him And I think that's going to be the biggest thing for him to be able to be productive, to be able to be a good facilitator and playmaker. I think that's where we're going to see it shine. I'm really excited about Colin Sexton. I do think this is probably the make or break year as far as determining what he can be, whether he can be get to sort of a star level player, really productive point guard in the NBA, or if he's going to be kind of a guy that projects to be a six man for the rest of his career. I think this season is the season where you can determine a lot of those things coming up after a little break, we will be talking about my top four, not going to give it away, but two rookies, one finish man and one first team all rookie from last year. Okay. I gave my bottom four out of the eight. Kevin Horton Tucker at the bottom, then Bryce Sensabaugh then Ochai Baji, and then Colin Sexton. Moving on to the top four, starting with the fourth on that list, I have Taylor Hendricks. Like, I like I liked Taylor Hendricks a lot. I would have loved to see him in Summer League, to see what he could do against NBA competition. Um, one of the reasons I think he is maybe a tricky evaluation is because of the conference he's playing in. The AAC isn't a bad conference. Um, he's playing against good teams like that Houston team. is really good. That Memphis team was really good. Both of those teams were pretty good in the NCAA tournament. I just, I'm, I'm curious about his role because when he was playing at UCF, he was pretty much the first option. He's playing the most minutes, taking the most shots, was shooting the best. Um, I mean, he's scoring the most for them. That's not what his role projects to be in the NBA. I like if Jazz fans don't know this yet, I don't think Taylor Hendricks is going to be that kind of a player where he's creating a lot. And I don't even know if he's going to be asked to do that. Like, I, I, I'm pretty hesitant about that. The reason I'm high on him is the mix of defense and shooting. I mean, we're looking at a league where basketball has changed so much. Um Having a four or a five that can stretch the floor and that can defend different positions, that's what you're looking for. Especially at this stage in the draft, like at number nine, 
while there might have been star level players available, like Cam Whitmore, I think the Jazz, what they're trying to draft is just the most value and the most sure thing. I don't know if Taylor Hendricks is going to be on the Jazz for his entire career. He might not even be on the Jazz next season. If the Jazz trade, make some sort of big trade, he's a guy that you could throw out. He's also a guy that you could keep, though, because, like I said, I think he projects to be a high-level role player. Somebody like Jaden McDaniels on the Timberwolves, I think that's kind of where his... That's probably the pedigree of player that he falls into um, as far as being like a shooter, defender. That's probably what he's going to be able to make money on. That's not necessarily the sexiest piece in a trade. Like, let's say the Dallas Mavericks want to trade... Luka Doncic to the Jazz and Luka asks out and he says he only wants to go to the Jazz we got like a little Damian Lillard situation here if it comes down to Keontae George and Taylor Hendricks being the center piece of that trade if I'm Dallas I would say Keontae George because of his overall upside and his ability to be potentially a franchise guy whereas I don't think Taylor Hendricks necessarily has that potential So that mix of not necessarily having that potential while also, I mean, he doesn't have that potential, but also just maybe isn't the caliber of player that Keontae George could be. I think that puts him at number four behind some of these other guys. At number three, fitting because it's his jersey number, I have Keontae George. My big thing, the big reason I didn't put him higher, while some might want to put him higher, they might want to put him number one or number two. I personally think that's a little bit crazy and premature. My big thing with him is how do we evaluate his summer league? Because there's kind of two different sections. And we saw what he did in Utah in the Salt Lake Summer League. He was great. Played pretty good through three games. Felt like he had a good control of the offense. Felt like he looked comfortable. What was even more impressive was when he got to Vegas. And I almost think he looked like a different player. Like, I thought he looked pretty good in Utah. And I thought he had a lot of flashes. When he got to Vegas, so he absolutely took over games and had a complete control over the game. Looked very confident as a playmaker and a point guard. My big question is, is that just a hot stretch or is that who he really is? to be able to determine whether that was just a hot stretch or if that's who Keontae George is, I think we just need a bigger sample size. That's why I wish we would have been able to see a little bit more of him in Vegas. Uh, That third game of Summer League versus the Clippers, he wasn't looking as great. He had had plays. He had plays. Don't get me wrong. He had an incredible ankle breaker. He had a really nice pass to Micah Potter that I still visualize on a daily basis. But I don't know if he was necessarily as productive that game as he was those first two games. And that's fine. It's it's one game, you know. Um, maybe the player that we saw in those first two games is a lot more indicative of the player that he's going to be. Either way, I think you can walk out of Summer League and see the potential and see the upside and see what kind of a player he could potentially develop into and evolve into given the opportunity, given um, opportunities to improve and opportunities to be in difficult situations, I think he can prove a lot. 
overall, I'm I'm really high on Keontae George. Having him number three on this list is in no way a bad thing. Um, just looking at the two players above, the production's already there. They've already been able to prove something on an in an, an NBA environment. So that that's 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 my big holdup with Keontae George. I just want to see him in an NBA environment. I want to see if he can um, improve more and be able to show more. I'm excited to dive more into Keontae George. Uh, don't even worry. There will be more episodes. We will talk so much more about Keontae George. I'm excited to do some rewatches of what he was able to do in Summer League and get a good idea of how good of a player he is. Because, I mean, if you if you watch Summer League, you know. Like, he seriously looked in control of a couple of those games. And I think that's where the attractiveness comes with Keontae George is that ability to control the game. Number two. Look, I battled between number one and number two, and people might call me crazy for battling between number one and number two because one was an all-star last year while the other was first-team all-rookie. Like, you would think the all-star starter would be the obvious choice. I don't know if it is. Um, look, maybe it's the off-season talking, but I think we need to have a conversation about Larry Markkinen. Because it's possible, I'm not saying it's the most likely outcome, but I do think it is possible he doesn't have the same season he had last season. Laurie Markkinen, like, I don't ever think he's been a bad NBA player, especially when you dive into the stats. Like, he produces when he's on the floor. It's kind of the thing with Omer Yurtsevin, where I believe he his production has been pretty uniform throughout his career, even though he hasn't gotten the same opportunities through those two years. I think it's very similar to Larry Markkinen and the opportunities he was able to get in Chicago and Cleveland in Utah. There are a couple of things that do make me high on Larry Markkinen. And just to be clear, I have Larry Markkinen number two on my list. Um, there's a couple of things that come into that. I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. So this last season for the Utah Jazz, just an incredible season when you look at it. He averaged 25.6 points per game, 8.6 rebounds per game, shot 49% from the field, and 39% from three, 87.5% from free throw. Incredibly productive from a shooting and scoring perspective. Um, There's a lot that I really like about Laurie Markkinen. I think his efficiency as a shooter and being thrust into a situation where he pretty quickly determined him pretty quickly was able to establish himself as the number one option on an okay team, a team that had a winning record for a lot of the season. That's a lot to like. There's so much to like there. Um, I also just, he looks different. You watch him on Cleveland. Go, go through some of his tape last year. He looks skinnier. The handle wasn't as good. Um, I mean, he's been a, he's been a solid shooter his entire career. He's a career 37% shooter from, from three, um, in Cleveland, he was thrust into position where he was playing the three. He was guarding threes very similarly to what he did in Utah. I actually really think that was crucial for his development as a player. It's kind of like he found his, his role. Um, I think it's the same thing with Christoph Porzingis where 
look, Larry Markkinen's first couple seasons in Chicago were super productive, as were Kristaps Porzingis' first couple seasons in New York. There was a lot to like about him. You thought he was going to be really good. Then he went to Dallas, and Larry kind of moved to the bench in Cleveland, in Chicago, um, stopped producing at the same rate, had a really rough year, especially in 2020 to 21. Chris Stapps went to Dallas. He had a really rough couple years with Luka. Like, they just never had the synergy. He looked out of place. It didn't look like a great fit. And then he goes to Washington, where it was a much better fit. He was able to produce a lot more. I think it's a, it's a very similar case with Laurie Markkinen. Um, some players have a lot of talent, and they just need the right fit as well as the right opportunity. And I think Laurie Markkinen had the right opportunity last season. Looking at the Jazz this next year and kind of what they project to be, I don't know if Larry Markkinen is going to be able to get the same amount of touches that he got last season. You have Colin Sexton taking shots. You have Jordan Clarkson taking shots. You have John Collins taking shots. You have Walker Kessler out there taking shots. I do think Larry Markkinen is still your number one option. I don't think that's crazy. Is he your number one shot creator, though? Probably not. I wouldn't say that he's a better shot creator than Jordan Clarkson. And so that's where that's where I'm hesitant. I just I'm curious to see how much opportunity he gets. I don't think Mike Conley was as big of a factor in this as people think. Um, the Jazz's system, the way that they're able to run, Mike Conley did a lot. Don't get me wrong. I think he was able to really thrive as a playmaker. What strikes me out, what strikes out about the Jazz um, and kind of how they run their offense is the off-ball movement. And some of the ways that they were able to create open shots for Larry Markkinen is really impressive. One specific play that comes in, comes to mind that they ran so many times this last season is a pin down screen on either side. So Larry typically starts like either in the corner or kind of under the basket or kind of between the corner and the basket. And a defender comes, sets a screen on his guy, and then he gets the ball in the mid-range. Sometimes he takes it off the dribble. Sometimes he takes a mid-range shot. Sometimes he'll go all the way out to the three and shoot a screen and shoot a, shoot, shoot a three. Um, so I don't think Larry Markkinen's production is going to go down because he's not getting the same looks because there's no Mike Conley. I think he's going to get very similar looks. I just don't know if he's going to be the same focal point that he was. So that's one reason that I might be a little bit lower on Larry Markkinen um, than Walker Kessler, for example. Another reason is going to be the contract. And I think the contract is the big thing. Larry Markkinen could be making a lot of money had he made an, an all-NBA team this last season. I don't think he'll have the same opportunity to make an all-NBA team. Maybe he does. Prove me wrong. I would love for him to prove me wrong. But I don't know if he'll necessarily have that same opportunity. However, the contract could still get very large and could still get to a number where it's almost kind of scary. Um, and he might not be as a productive enough player to justify getting that kind of money. That's that's my fear. And for that reason, I have I have him number two on this list. I I would love to hear counter arguments. Please prove me wrong. Um, I'm 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 trying to have a different opinion, not just for the sake of having a different opinion, but because I actually think Walker Kessler might have more value going forward. People talk about Walker Kessler. They talk about centers, especially rim protecting centers. And the big thing you'll hear Jazz fans say, and this is fair, but the big thing you'll hear them say is, 
well, is he going to be able to stay on the court in a playoff series? We watched... You watched a couple years of the playoffs. We watched the Jazz go against a good Clippers team and beat them, send them home, and the Lob City franchise, and then take on the Warriors with Kevin Durant. The next year, they beat the Thunder in the first round, and then they played a really good Rockets team, a Rockets team that I believe went to the conference semifinals and took, or conference finals and took the Golden State Warriors to seven games. Or maybe that might have been the year after. Either way, they lost to that same team, essentially. Then they lose to the Denver Nuggets in the in the bubble. Don't think that was because of Rudy Gobert. I just think that was an incredible circumstance where, I mean, the Jazz, they did blow a 3-1 lead. The big one that stands out is against the Los Angeles Clippers. That's a series that everybody's going to point to when they talk about a rim protecting center not being able to play in a in the playoffs you can play a rim protecting center in the playoffs the bucks have played brooke lopez um there have been other rim protecting centers that you're able to play anthony davis he's had no problem granted i don't think walker kessler is going to get to the level of defensive player that anthony davis currently is because i don't know if walker kessler has that type of mobility in him but you're able to play play rim protecting centers Um, what they need to be able to do is be able to punish opposing teams on the other side of, on the other side of the floor. If you're playing your traditional five man lineup with a big center in the middle and the other team play throws out their small ball lineup to try and spread you out, how's, how's your team going to respond? There's kind of two ways I think you can attack it. Um, first of all, you can just keep playing those five. And if they're able to defend well enough on a, on an individual basis, and if they're able to stretch the floor, more importantly, if they're able to switch um, and be able to defend, then I think you can absolutely get away with that. The other side is the offensive side. If teams go small against you and you have a guy that is able to break down defenses because he's bigger than the defenses, which Walker Kessler is, you can't put Terrence Mann on Walker Kessler and expect Walker Kessler to do nothing. Granted, Walker Kessler hasn't shown a ton of self-creation out of the post. I do think he is and projects to be a better offensive player, more well-rounded, better out of the post player than Rudy Gobert does. And so that's where I'm buying into Walker Kessler. The other part is I just I think he's going to add more to his game. We saw one season of him. He played in 40 games. He started in 40 games, excuse me. He played in 74 games. He played 23 minutes per game. He was incredibly productive in those 23 minutes per game. Shot 72% from the field. Nine points per game. 8.4 rebounds per game. Three offensive rebounds per game. 2.3 blocks per game. Like, he, on on a minute-to-minute basis, he's producing a ton I think he's going to be able to continue to do, be on that same traje- trajectory while also expanding more to his game. One of the things I really like about him is how he operates as a passer. Another thing that you need in playoff settings is somebody that's able to operate as a passer. If Walker Kessler can not necessarily run the offense, but not stagnate the offense by being somebody you can go to in dribble handoff situations or being somebody that can swing the ball, 
then I think he absolutely will have no problem playing in the playoffs. And he has shown so far that he's able to do that. A lot of times he'll be the role man and he'll get the ball kind of in the mid post and he throws out a good kickout pass. Like watch that next season, watch what he's able to do. He's going to be an okay passer and somebody that is always going to keep defensive defenses honest, somebody that can find the open man a lot of the time and somebody that is able to understand defensive schemes because he's such a brilliant defender himself. Like I, I honestly think we saw a little bit of this with Rudy Gobert a lot of times with Rudy Gobert, he would make some of those really good passes. I was kind of waiting for the day when Rudy Gobert would get a triple-double, when he would get 10 assists, but never happened. Rudy Gobert made some really good passes, made some really good reads. I think Walker Kessler can be even better at that just because of his general coordination and because he's able to show some of the understanding of defense at such a young age. So that's where I buy into Walker Kessler. Look, I don't I don't know if he could ever be your best player on the team. Could Larry Markinen? I don't I don't think so. Could Walker Kessler be your second best player? I think it depends on who your first best player is, but I also think he's going to be a guy that leads teams to top 10 defenses on a perennial yearly basis. He's going to be really hard to play against and I think he's only going to get better and better. I'm really excited for year 2 of Walker Kessler. Maybe it's a down year. Maybe I'm totally wrong, and maybe he has way more value, but I think he has more value than Laurie Markinen. Coming up, one last segment to finish this podcast off. We're going to be talking about one reason that I think the Utah Jazz could be a playoff team next year. All right, we're going to do a little bit. We're going to do a little exercise here. Run through the West. Um, look at who got better, who got worse. We'll look at the standings from last year. Okay, so starting number one. Denver Nuggets. They probably got a little bit worse just because Bruce Brown is gone and he was a big part of that team throughout this season. I mean, he was closing games for them. So I imagine they'll be a little bit worse. Um, Some of the models I've looked at have also projected them to be a little bit worse because he is gone. However, I do think they have guys that are ready to step up, fill some roles. I think Christian Brown is one of those guys. Peyton Watson is somebody that's stood out. Um, Who's there? They had a summer league standout. Um, I believe Hunter Tyson. I hope I hope I'm not butchering that. Um, but he really stood out. He looks like a guy that could potentially be a rotation player. So I I don't think they're totally going to drop off. Like I still think they're a really good team. And the biggest question is, can their starting five stay healthy? Probably, maybe. I will see. Uh, if they do, then they have as good a shot as anybody to win it all. So I kind of have them in that same tier. The Grizzlies. All right, the Grizzlies had an interesting offseason. Got rid of Dylan Brooks. Got rid of Tyus Jones. Brought in Mark, Marcus Smart. I really like that for them, actually. I think that probably makes them a better team, especially in the postseason. Marcus Smart is somebody that has experience that I think will add an element of toughness that the Grizzlies, I mean, they're a tough team but maybe an element of toughness and just something new that they need um, to take them to the next level. The jaw suspension will factor in. So we maybe we see them lose some games, but their depth has typically been a plus and they've been good without John Morant. So we'll see. I still think they're up there. The Kings. I'm curious about the Kings. The Kings are going to be really interesting. Um, 
they had cap space and they didn't really do anything with it besides retaining some of their guys. Uh, they recently brought in Erlens Noel. They brought in, I believe, a Serbian um, who had won the EuroLeague MVP last season. So he's an interesting player. I wonder how much he'll help them. I think Keegan Murray takes a jump. I really liked what we saw from him in one game of Summer League or two games maybe. Really good. I think they'll still be okay. How durable is Sabonis going to be, though? Uh, Sabonis just played a brutal season where he did play for a large part of that season with a broken finger. He also got stomped on in the playoffs. I mean, he's shown that he's pretty durable. My, But if he goes down, I don't know what they're going to look like. Like, I still think you really like what you have in Fox and Murray and Herder and Monk and Mitchell. But I don't know. I, I think he does so much for them that I think it's going to be hard. I also just don't, I don't feel like they got better. I hope they proved me wrong because they were one heck of a story last season, but I don't know if they got better. Next is the Suns. And man, the Suns are such a hard evaluation. Overall, I do think they're going to be good. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about their depth. The Clippers. We'll see what happens with them. They're next. Um, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Will they bring in James Harden? Will that get rid of some of their depth, which has kind of kept them afloat? Um, I don't know if they have another season of load managing in them. I don't know if that group does. I think they could be some a team to watch to maybe crumble in some sort of way. The Warriors, they brought in Chris Paul. I just think the Warriors are... I don't know if they got better. Um... I mean, they finished six, so they weren't bad last season. But like a lot of other teams, I think they're one Steph Curry injury away. The Lakers, I actually do believe in them. I think they did get better. Um, They added some more depth and were just able to replace their productive players with maybe even more productive players. So I'm curious to see what happens with them. They also looked really good post-trade deadline, and they have that same roster going into opening night. The Timberwolves, still some questions about there, especially with their front court. Um, I think the big question mark about them is Ant and how much of a leap he's going to take. I'm really high on Ant. I think he's an incredible player. He's got that it factor. Um, I think they're a team that could be even better. The Pelicans. Are Zion and Brandon Ingram going to be healthy? The Thunder. What's their young core going to look like? How is it going to mesh? How is it going to be with Chet Holmgren getting a lot of minutes to start? The Mavericks. Uh, I thought I think they improved. Like I, I like some of their signings, and their roster just looks a little bit deeper than it did last season, so I think they're probably improved. And then I think the Trailblazers, Rockets, and Spurs, the two, three teams that finished below the Jazz last year, um, I think the Rockets got better, but the Trailblazers just got worse, and the Spurs are probably about the same. I think those two, three teams end up being last again. Look, all I'm doing this exercise just to show you kind of what you're looking at in the West. It's an incredibly deep Western conference. You start to look into those teams, and I mean, every team got better pretty much. Like, I don't know if the Pelicans necessarily got better, but they didn't really need to get better. They just needed to get healthy. And so we'll see. We'll see if they are able to get healthy. The Thunder are, you're imagining that they're going to get better with bringing in Chet Holmgren, the former number two pick. Like, I think you're expecting a little bit of a leap from them. Also, just their team has 
looked great. They have a lot of good players. So I, I'd expect a leap from them. Are the Jazz better than any of these teams? Maybe. I don't know. I, we'll talk about that later. But the Jazz might have one of the deepest teams in the entire NBA, and that's why I would be willing to put them ahead of some of these teams. And this is why I think they could realistically get a playoff berth. Looking at the point guard rotation, Colin Sexton, Chris Dunn, Taylor Horton Tucker, Keontae George. You're always going to have one of those guys on the court, somebody to be productive, or maybe two of those guys. Shooting guard, you have Jordan Clarkson, Ochag Baji. That's a really good two-man rotation. And then whichever the guards, whichever the other point guards. Small forward, you have Laurie Markkinen. And then Luka Simonic, Simone Fintecchio, Bryce Sensabaugh. That's a pretty good four-man rotation. Power forward, this is where it gets really good. John Collins, Taylor Hendricks. Center, Walker Kessler, Kelly Olynyk, Omar Yurtsevin. I think the Jazz are one of the deepest teams, 1 through 15. While they might not be the most top-loaded team, I do think they are one of the deepest teams. And because of that, I think they could be looking at a playoff berth this next year. But we'll see. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the Swish Lake City podcast. As always, make sure to follow me on Twitter at Jazz Lead, where I am producing daily content, trying to focus on the Jazz highlights. You you name it. You got it there. Um, also, feel free to subscribe on YouTube. Follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts. And stay tuned for a weekly episode next week, next Wednesday. Have a good one.